Stay hungry, stay foolish. As always, thank you to our partners, Zai. Zai is a global fintech building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. Check them out at hellozai.com. It's no secret that continuous innovation is the key to seizing and maintaining the competitive edge in today's increasingly challenging business environment. Unfortunately, the process for achieving this holy grail of business has been a mystery until now. Today's book delivers a proven system for building relentless innovation into your company's DNA. Our guest, a professor and former Dean of Executive Education of INSEAD, explores the essential practices of many of the world's most innovative organizations and demonstrates how you can leverage them in your own company. You'll learn how to drive innovating in product design and creative use of technology, as well as business activities such as business model redesign, customer service, distribution, finance, talent development, and sales. The big question on the mind of every business leader today is, what can I do to create extra value for my company and the customers we serve? This book provides everything you need to transform your organization into an innovating engine that continually produces new products and processes to generate enormous new value for you and for the customers you serve. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Built to Innovate, Essential Practices to Wire Innovation into Your Company's DNA, Ben Bensau. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. It's wonderful to have you on the show. And behind me, for those watching us on YouTube, I have two copies. That means there's a copy up for grabs for you. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter, and you'll be in with a chance to win that book. It's a fascinating read. It's packed full of examples, Ben, many of which you've worked on firsthand, which is very unusual and wonderful, because we can dig into some of those examples. And for that very reason, Today will be a part one of part two, because there's so much in this book, and I'm really eager to share and Ben has kindly agreed to do a part two. So today we'll do part one, we'll get through as much as we can. And then we'll get into part two, the next day. Before we start, there is some important aspects, Ben, I'd love to share and to clarify with the audience. These are useful lenses through which to read the book. And for today, for those people who are listening to us to listen to today's show, the first is the duality of business between executing and innovating those engines, the execution engine, and the innovating engine. The second is the subtle difference in wording that I mentioned there, but a dramatic difference in reality between innovation and innovating. Perhaps you'll start with that and clarify those different lenses. Yes, I'd love to. Um, well, actually, this distinction I use not to make. Uh, and and uh, I've been you know, teaching, training, helping companies to implement innovation, develop a culture of innovation. And what I had noticed uh, a, a while ago is that uh, each time I walk into a room and I talk about, okay, let's do innovation, let's learn about innovation. I found that the word innovation as a noun was very intimidating, especially to, you know, middle man, I mean, actually to everybody, middle managers, frontline uh, employees. And it was really unsettling. Why was there so much anxiety and fear? And I kind of understood that very often when people were sent to a training on innovation, they had this funny feeling that when they went back, they were expected to deliver uh, something, to deliver a new product, uh, a, a new service, something concrete. They were expected to deliver an outcome, uh, a, a result. And then, of course, these things happen almost by serendipity, by chance. Uh, I started to talk about the verb. I used the verb. I said, well, let's learn how to innovate or let's try to be more innovative. And I had this feeling that the tension was gone. And it really puzzled me. And I found out after testing it many times that when you use the verb, and naturally, it, it, it signifies action. It signifies activities. People understood that when we said, let's learn how to innovate, it was about learning a process. It's about learning some, some activities where you can actually use tools. And this is something that can be learned. Very often people associate innovation 
the output with also with a genius leader, some 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 sort of founder, somebody who has who has it in his DNA, his or her DNA. But if you talk about innovating as a process, this is something that can be learned by anybody. So, I mean, this is the distinction I, I learned how to make. And, and actually, I use another metaphor that uh, that, that people seem to be uh, receptive to. I, I I think of and I talk about innovation as like the tip of the iceberg. What you see, the mountain that you see above the water level, and this is the output. This is the the outfront of this world. This is the business models of this world. And what is under the water, what you don't see, is the innovating capabilities. Is you know what built to innovate is about is about building this collective. I, I mean, you know, Linda Hill called it collective genius. And this is what the book is about. It's really about how do you, using a systematic approach, develop those capabilities where everyone can innovate. And hopefully, with the law of large numbers, you're more likely to maybe get an innovation. Wonderful. And then there's the other framework. Yes, the duality of business. Of course, you know, if you think about uh, the, the, the world that many organizations are facing today, very uncertain, unpredictable, changing uh, rapidly. So it puts stress on organizations and leaders to be um, to excel at two kind of activities which seem a little bit contradictory. Uh, on the one hand, they they have to implement today's strategy. Well, they have to develop and design and deliver products that customers want. Um, at very high quality level, on time, at the right right pricing. This is the job of execution. And we know, I mean, you you also get involved in, in teaching. I mean, business school, consulting firms uh, are spending lots of time training uh, managers to, to be good at execution. But at the same time, as they're implementing today's strategy, they have to think about the strategy of tomorrow, the organization of tomorrow. They have to excel at uh, rethinking, reimagining the, the, the products and services they offer today. They need to think about new offerings that nobody has thought of before. And this is innovating. And this is the role of the innovating engine. So traditionally, you can go around, and and we may certainly uh, discuss this later. The book is really um, oriented towards established firms. I mean, it is useful for startups and extremely innovative companies, but it's really for established firms. And very often, these established firms have been designed around execution. They have a very strong execution engine. And for innovation, they have a tendency to rely either on a genius leader or specialized people in R&D. And what the book is about is how do you build an innovating engine that would run in parallel to your execution engine? You go on to say that that, now that we've clarified that, that innovating engine is driven by three key processes of innovating, creation, integration, and reframing. And we'll get into them a little bit later into a bit more detail from some of the examples that you share within the book. But you say to build an innovating engine, which will operate in parallel with an existing execution engine, everyone within the company must be engaged in these three processes in addition to his or her execution engine role. Maybe we'll give an overview of these three processes now, Ben, and then later on, if we have time today or the next day, we can give the example of Quartz, an organization that you worked with. To just track back, I mean, the, the, the starting point was really this observation that many people uh, tend to think that uh, uh, you need a genius leader or you need to be a startup to be innovative. And that's not true. Uh, in, in the research, and, and I'm, I'm, I mean, you notice that a lot of the examples I give uh, are established firms. Some, some of them are century-old companies, uh, and they are able to innovate. How do they do this? Is that they don't necessarily kind of uh, are obsessed by uh, uh, an industry, a huge industry-changing kind of effect, but they they're looking for uh, in, you know small, important, very often. Uh, changes that are in unexpected places. And for this, they use uh, 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 continuous innovation. For this, they need to, and this is what the book is about, is they need to create um, 
a space within the organization, a protected space, fully uh, legitimized, uh, where people can innovate. So, uh, and you remember it, it says that everybody can innovate. So innovation is everybody's job. You can innovate in everything you do, not only in your products or, 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 or services, but also in your processes, internal processes, external processes, in your functions, you can innovate in HR, in, in legal. And thirdly, innovating, if we stick to the distinction I'm making, innovating as a process has to become a habit. So for this, you need to create this engine where uh, uh, you, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a lot of companies create temporary uh, initiatives uh, that support innovating activities. But what I'm talking about is really creating an engine with its formal structure and some tasks and responsibilities we talk about, some uh, uh, processes that drive this, uh, this, this, this organization or this engine, as I call it, and it has its own distinctive culture. So the same way that the execution engine typically uh, operates with, you know, I mean, broadly speaking, strategy, you know, uh, uh, execution and control and budgeting and reporting in between, the three processes that would drive, that need to drive this innovating engine as a formal organization are creation. So creation is the process by which the organization develops new ideas, right? I mean, and this is done very often by people who are close to the customer or, and the non-customer, as I will dis discuss maybe later. Uh, and they are the ones who create this raw material for innovation, the, the new ideas. Then these ideas, they need to be integrated. This is the integration process. This is where the organization connects all of these ideas, connects all the people who are in the, in, you know, engaged in innovating activities. And it also is the process by which we, you winnow these ideas, you channel them, you select them, you may prototype them, and some will come out of the process, usually a stage gate type of process, and they are moved onto the execution engine to be implement. And then the third process for innovating that is important is what I call the reframing process. It is the process by which the organization, as you, you were saying, is able to you know, implement the strategy of today, but at the same time, question it, challenge it, challenge some of the assumptions that are made in the firm and also in the industry about what kind of business we are in, who are our customers? Uh, what is the value that we're creating for these customers? And, and maybe we can create value for non-customers. So these are the three processes that are really unique to what I would call the innovation engine, innovating engine. You mentioned there the organizations that you worked with. You work with a lot of legacy organizations. You use case studies of those. But what I love about this book, and which is really valuable for those CEOs and leaders and innovation leaders, innovating leaders who listen to the show, is that you talk about businesses that work in cement, in tire manufacturing, textiles, but also then the great examples like Gore, BASF, Bayer, all these type of organizations as well. But I wanted to flag something on reframing because I loved how you frame reframing. And I think this is the new normal for businesses. You say to prepare for the future, every organization has to keep questioning its existing strategy while implementing it, continually challenging the accepted dogma, convention, orthodoxies, and underlying assumptions on which our current execution space activities are based is essential to making change and progress possible. But this is very hard to do during your ordinary daily activities. When you're immersed in execution, you are so focused on following standard procedures as efficiently as possible, that it's almost impossible to achieve the psychological distance needed to see the possible weaknesses or gaps or opportunities in those procedures. I thought that was an essential line because working with organizations as I do, and speaking to leaders as I do, this is the big challenge. It's like, well, I'm measured on execution. I'm not measured on tomorrow, but I know it's extremely important. So there's a cognitive dissonance there. It's like a, a humming fridge in the background that's bugging so many organizations, so many leaders. What have you found with that? 
I mean, you're totally right. I mean, uh, I mean, I call it reframing. I mean, you could you could you could call it purpose, or, or I don't know if you would say repurposing, but basically, today's strategy is already kind of framed with a purpose, a mission, uh, and it, and this is totally fine. But as the environment changes, the purpose might have to adapt to the new environment, to the new technology, to the the, the new competitive framework. And this is what reframing is about. Is really, it's not about kind of questioning today's strategy as it is being implemented, but thinking about how are these changes uh, uh, opening opportunities for a new statement of purpose. And you can see already a lot of organizations are picking up on it. I mean, I, I mean, I give some very dramatic examples in the book about companies that have completely reframed themselves, you know, completely in two different businesses. But you can see already quite a lot of leaders reframing the purpose of the organization to include sustainability, for instance. Uh, to to include di digital uh, uh, technologies, to include diversity. So, reframing uh, happens. But I think what I'm talking about is that the reframing is a process in which everybody has a role to play. I mean, of course, the one who enlarges the the frame is the CEO. Are the senior leaders who very often open, when they open the frame, when they reframe, they create new opportunities for people to look for ideas in this new frame. Otherwise, people feel almost like they can't, they can't, they can't go there. So it's, it's, it's a way to give permission, as I always repeat in the book, is to give permission to innovate. To give them permission to innovate, you have to enlarge the, the frame. So, I mean, one of my uh, favorite example, and by the way, I want to come back on something you just said, which is really important to me, is that, of course, we have lots of books out there and consultants and you know and experts and who 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 can tell us a lot about innovation learning from the most innovative companies but what i've tried to do in the book is to try to learn not from only the most innovative companies and of course i i, I mentioned like you said about gore about netflix amazon but to learn about the the companies that are not necessarily or the industries that are not necessarily known for innovation like you said, you know, in cement, in paint, in uh, in, in 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 tires, uh, this is really about how, if you are on a scale of, you know, one to ten on innovation, I mean, it can be useful. I'm not saying that the book and the ideas that you you might you might uh, t testify to this can be useful to companies that are on eight or nine on that scale, but really, the book is targeted for companies that are around three, four, and want to move to eight or nine. So this is really why I tried to make sure that we would talk about, about companies like Korza. Korza, uh, if, if you remember, this is a, a Turkish company who makes textile that goes into tires to reinforce tires. And this was a company, and I followed almost for 12 years now, the CEO who single-handedly, starting from scratch, transformed the company, uh, created an innovating engine, and this was a commodity supplier. I mean, you can imagine this is just textile that goes into ties. This was a commodity supplier, you know, competition, one of many competing on price. And with the innovating engine, he was able to transform the organization into one of the most innovative suppliers to uh, their customers, uh, and they supply not only the products, but services and solutions, and not only to the automakers, but now they also enter new markets like the construction market or, or the aerospace market. So this is, this is why I tried to you know, make sure that we would have companies that, 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 that can show the way about how you increase your innovating capability and reframing the way that, you know, Jenk Alpert at Corsa reframed the company is by saying, we're not about, we're not about just textile for tires. We are the reinforcer. We are a reinforcer. So he created a new frame. Now he was inviting the company to think about all of the ways that the company could develop ideas and products to reinforce not only tires, but buildings. And now they have material on the on, on, on the space shuttle. They had, you know, they work with NASA.
And recently, actually, I was talking to him recently. Now he's, he's expanding it. Now he says, we are reinforcer of, of life. So now he's including sustainability. So you can see how each time senior leaders picking up the input from everybody else in the organization, everybody has a role to play in the reframing. He's expanding the purpose. He's opening the valves so that people can you know, pour new ideas and, 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 and create new value for existing customers or totally new customers. We'll come back to Quartza because there's a great example that really brings to life the three processes, the creation and the reframing as well. But the other people part is the people part. And when I work in organizations, I'm sure you've had this challenge as well. You're like, sometimes you're like, why, why is this HR team not here or the L&D lead because they need a place at the boardroom table now because so much of this work begins with the changing of mindsets like the reframing, the reframing of what we do, how we treat our customers. Our customers are actually co-creators with us as well. And you tell us in the book that people at every level within the organization all have distinctive contributions to make at each of these three innovating processes. In describing their roles as part of the innovating engine, you refer to the three main levels of, of the organization as frontline innovators, mid-level coaches, and senior leaders. And your study on how innovation-centered companies operate has helped you to develop the Build to Innovate framework, the BTI framework. I'll share that framework, Ben, if it's okay for those of people watching us here on YouTube and those watching us wherever they're watching us. And maybe we'll, we'll speak over that framework. The same way, the same way that uh, the uh, execution engine has driving processes. I mean, I mentioned strategy, execution, reporting, budgeting. I mean, there are all, all sorts of processes that are, you know, underlying the execution process. The same way the innovating engine also has the three processes we talked about. Creating, a creation, integration, and 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 reframing. And what is important is to recognize that everyone in the organization has a contribution to make to these three processes. Of course, when it comes like, for instance, if you look at, at creation, creation, it's natural that frontline innovators will have, a, 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 let's say, a comparatively bigger contribution to make, but that doesn't mean that you know, senior leaders or middle managers are not supporting or making contribution to that same process. So this, this, is, this, is, this is how to look, this is the way to look at this, 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 this uh, BTI framework. Three processes and three key roles, and everybody has a role to play, a contribution to make to each of these roles. So, I mean, there's, there's, the, the BDI framework is, 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 is therefore like a three by three. Uh, maybe a couple notes to make about this. Uh, it's not the usual three by three that you see in, in, in a lot of business school frameworks. I mean, one is that the, 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 the lines, the horizontal lines actually, or they're a little bit inclined to actually uh, depict the fact that, you know, if you look at it very carefully, uh, uh, frontline innovators have a bigger contribution to make to creation than maybe you know the uh, senior leaders, uh, even though they have a role to play. And as, uh, conversely, reframing you can see that the uh, the, the space uh, dedicated senior leaders is much bigger. A bit bigger. The second thing I would like to highlight also is that the line separating the um, the three roles and the three uh, processes are dotted lines to indicate. One, that the, the, the lines between the different hierarchical levels are generally porous and, you know, people move back and forth. Uh, and, 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 you know, a lot of the innovating activities happen also in teams. And, and also the processes also are interdependent or interrelated, if I, if I may say. So what do, how do, how do uh, uh, frontline innovators help with creation? Well, they are, they are really the ones who deliver, who create, generate, if you will, the new ideas, the, what I like to call the raw material of, of, of innovating. And they do this by, as we said, doing the execution job, but at the same time, on a regular basis, spend time in the innovating engine 
doing some innovating activities, which very often involve interacting, you know, observing, working with customers. And we'll talk about that later, listening to the silence of the customer, the voice of the customer, and also learning from non-customers. Now, how do middle-level coaches or middle, middle managers help creation? They are the ones who have to somewhat give permission to their teams to get involved in innovating activities. They need to uh, provide support. They are the ones who create the time. They are the ones who give them some training. They are the ones who create some uh, resources for frontline innovators to do their, their magic, if you will. And at the same time, they are the ones who can review and channel a new idea so that they, they kind of move forward. The senior leaders have an important role to play in the creation because they are the ones who create the norms and the standards and the incentives for innovatives. So a lot of people tell me, you know, we're, we're trying to be innovative. We, 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 we don't have kind of restriction. No, it's, it's a process like others. There are standards. There are, there are uh, performance targets. There are uh, time limits. So there's as much discipline in innovating as in execution. So the ones who set the, 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 the standards, the ones who set the, um, the, the, uh, the norms uh, for uh, creation are the senior leaders. And they are the ones also who give permission and, 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 and create the incentives for innovating to the uh, frontline innovators. They are the ones also who give, you know, uh, the, um, the, the rewards and the, the awards and recognition for, for the individual uh, frontline innovators when they are successful. Integration, as you can see from the, from the model, the ones, who the ones who play a very critical role in, in, in winnowing, in connecting the dots in the organization between the people, the ideas and the resources are the middle level managers. So these are the ones who build this connective process. They are the ones who, who, who link also through the stage gate process or through the winnowing process, channeling process. They are the ones who connect the innovating engine and the execution engine. Once the ideas come from the, innovator, uh, the frontline innovators, they go through the process overlooked by the middle managers. And the successful ones, the ones that are prototyped that are that are tested and succeed go into the implementation in you know, execution engine and the ones who actually cater and uh, safeguard this process are the middle managers now it is not to say that frontline innovators are not helping with the integration process as innovators they they participate in cross disciplinary teams they uh, meet uh, uh, other innovators, internal or external, and actually sharing their innovative practices, their connections, and the customer knowledge that they garner through their activities helps to build this connective, uh, this collective innovating capability of the organization. So, uh, uh, frontline innovators are also extremely important to integration process, and of course. This integration process can happen only because, as I said earlier, the innovating engine has a structure, a governance structure with a set of tasks and responsibilities. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that uh, uh, later. And also by creating a common language. I mean, through, it can be through the training, it can be through the, the communication of the senior leaders. Uh, so the senior leaders, uh, take an active uh, uh, role in the integration process. Now, reframing, as I said earlier, reframing is really uh, very much a big responsibility for senior leaders. They are the one who can put innovation at the center of the, the corporate strategy. They are the ones who reframe the purpose, if you will. Uh, they are the ones who, uh, uh, by doing this, allow uh, everybody to challenge the assumptions, to challenge the dogma without permission. You know, I, very often when I talk to people, uh, they, 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 don't, they don't realize that if you don't give permission to innovate, people won't do it. 
they won't, people don't do it. It would not occur to them. I mean, uh, this is this is how it, it it very often works in legacy firms. So I always kind of repeat to senior leaders: don't forget to give permission. Don't take it for granted. Don't assume that people will understand that you're giving them permission. Give permission. Make sure that you uh, you, you state it. Make sure that you have a, a, as I said, a governance structure that supports that. So this is the main role for for senior leaders in in reframing. But of course, where does the reframing, the ideas of the reframing, come? They come from frontline innovators. They are the ones who are poking every day. At the, at, the, at the established uh, uh, beliefs, they are the ones who come back with information from the customers and non-customers and and challenge their their boss and challenge and and you know and and, and challenge the whole organization. So, by being always you know in in a creative mode, in a challenging mode, like you know we always say, think out of the box. We encourage them to think out of the box. So we should give them permission to challenge the box. So they will. And that's how they participate in the reframing process. And of course, the reframing process will not happen if people don't feel secure, don't feel safe. If you come and, uh, and by the way, uh, Aidan, this is something I was really puzzled because I heard, I heard this quite often. Uh, I mean, very often I get engaged in a company where, where senior leaders say, we want to build a culture of innovation. We're not innovative enough. And after a very kind of quick, uh, quick and dirty audit, I, 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 I realized that that's not true. The, the organization is quite innovative. And when I talk to people in the front, they, they just don't feel that their ideas are, are wanted. They have lots of ideas. I come back and I say, well, you can't be surprised. I mean, you know, you, 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 your organization is very innovative. But in fact, people don't think that they're somebody wants the ideas. So you have to create an environment where people feel safe, where people feel that uh, uh, their ideas are wanted. And for this, this is where uh, middle managers have to, as I call it, give the permission. Again, give the permission. The permission comes from the top, of course, but it has to also be carried through by the middle managers. And for this, we need a fair process. We need a fair process. Without fair process, you don't get you don't have trust. People are afraid, afraid that um, you know their idea is going to be laughed at or that the idea is not going to be liked by their boss. So this is very important. This is essential to um, the, 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 the innovating engine and and to in particular to the reframing process, the sense of trust and safety and fair process. There's something you said there that's really important. It's not just even that, you know, you say people's ideas aren't wanted, there's no medium through which to share their ideas, there's no way to get those ideas to those who make the decisions. But also, in addition, sometimes the organization is doing lots of innovating, but there's no storytelling of that innovating, there's no signposting or breadcrumbing of the information of those innovations. And that can really change how people think about themselves as well when they know they're innovating, and it's spelled out to them and saying, Look, you were the first to do this. We innovated in a process, we innovated in a business model, those things start to tweak mental models within an organization as well. Yes. And I think this is very important to because what we're talking about is really, uh, when we get to this, uh, reframing and 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 uh, uh, even integration, it's it's really very very cultural. And if you if you if you don't mind, I can tell you a story which uh, which now I use all the time in my teaching. And and I actually happen to have met the the the, the manager who inspired me. Uh, I think it was in two thousand two. I met him. He's, he's Japanese. He works for a company called Recruit. I met him in December, mid December. And, 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 and let me tell you what happened. Um, I mean, I, I call it the power of thank you. The power of saying thank you. What he had noticed, well, I, I had trained him. I had trained him in, uh, in innovation. And I was curious to know how he was doing and how he, he was implementing. So he showed me some of the innovations that he has brought. And I, and, and I was curious. I said, which, which tool did you use? Which uh, framework did you use? And he said, I didn't. Uh, I mean, he, he didn't. He didn't teach them to his people. That's very different. He didn't teach them to his people. What he did is that he used question instead. 
He used the frameworks in his head and then he used questions. And I will mention the two questions that he uses. But what is very important to me is that when he uh, said he had noticed that uh, when his staff, when they were in execution mode, they were accomplishing their tasks. Very often these tasks are very structured. Uh, they are very clear. Uh, they even know that their boss can observe what they're doing, can even can use metrics. They have metrics, they have KPIs. So when they are in execution mode, his staff knew that he could tell how well they were doing. But then he noticed when you are in innovating mode, you don't have this visibility anymore. You cannot come and say, oh, Aiden, I think you have an idea you're not telling me about, right? There's no way, there's no way a boss can know if his staff have an idea or not. And you sometimes people are surprised at the retirement speech, somebody mentioning about an idea they had. And it's like, why, why didn't you tell me then? So what he started to do in a very subtle way, every time somebody came to see him, he started to say, thank you. When somebody brought an idea to him, he would, he would start by saying, thank you. Because he realized that each time they came to uh, share an idea with him, they were taking a risk because they could just kind of be uh, silent and never mention about the idea. He would never know. So when they came and volunteered an idea, they were taking a risk. They were effectively giving, giving him a gift. They were making a gift to him. And he told me, when I receive a gift, I say thank you. So from then on, it's time, it's time somebody came you know, to him and said, maybe I have an idea. He would just start with, thank you. <laughs> but it's really interesting because I had this conversation with him recently. Once people started to um, notice that he wanted their ideas, he was welcoming the ideas. In fact, they understood that bringing new ideas was part of their job. Execution is, of course, their job, but bringing new ideas is also part of their job. And I think this is also an important message I would like to convey with the book is that innovating is also part of everybody's job and, 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 and giving permission, but also making sure that people understand that they are expected to bring innovation, not, not that they should be measured on it. I mean, we can come back to who should be incentivized for innovation, but that's a different conversation. But then what happened to him is that people started to flock to his office and bombard him with ideas. And some were, some, some were brilliant, <laughs> but a lot, a lot of them were not that good. So then he said, I need to do something about this. And then he remembered, I had taught him uh, in the book, it's in chapter two, it's called the value test. And then as typical of Japanese managers, he didn't kind of impose the framework onto people. Like, you know, it's like a, an authority. What he did, he simply asked questions. Somebody would come with an idea. Boss, I have an idea. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really happy you bring me your ideas. But can you help me with your idea? Can you, can you explain to me why would customers like this idea? Why? I mean, in, in the book, it's called willingness to pay. Why would customers be willing to pay? So he would say, and, and by the way, if, if, if the person wouldn't know, he would just say, well, why don't you go and ask a customer? So you see, in a very subtle way, he was creating this, this mindset that when you have an idea, you have to think about the value to the customer first. And then, Brilliant. of course, people would come back to him and then they would have like this, uh, this explanation for why the customer would want uh, the idea. And then he would ask the second question, which is, but what would be the benefit to us to, to implement this idea? Uh, you know, this is the value to the, the customer. The first question, value to the firm, you know, uh, uh, the profit or the value, if it's an internal process, the value to the firm. And what was really uh, intriguing to me is when he explained to me he kept doing this for a while. So then one day he noticed one person came to him and said, boss, I have an idea and the customer is going to like it because ABC and we're going to benefit from it because of this and this and this and this. 
And this is amazing because what he had done, he had created a new language. He had created a new culture, a new norm. He didn't, uh, he didn't, he didn't force people. It just kind of, they kind of learned. He created a discipline within the company where, of course, people talk to each other. And they knew that if uh, you have to take an idea to your boss, he's going to ask this. They talk to each other. So I think this is this is this is very important uh, 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 in the in the uh, very important role for middle managers uh, is I mean again to learn how to say thank you, encourage people to come with ideas, but at the same time, of course, send them to training. But you know, simple questions to discipline their thinking when it comes to ideas. Primarily, what's the value to the customer? And what is the value to us? I think that can help uh, not only filter a lot of ideas that people you know, will self-discipline themselves, will not bring to you, but at the same time, when they're going to be looking for new ideas, they'll have the right thinking about it. Wonderful. I, I kind of diverge. This is not your question, but even better, <laughs> even better. I was uh, I was laughing to myself. I was thinking of um, when when I was when my children were younger, and you know the way your panic is when your children are young. You're like kind of going, bring them to the doctor, bring them to the hospital, and there's a triage nurse. I was thinking of of that that uh, student, the Japanese manager, and he's like got a triage nurse at his door, going, "Firstly, thank you, but here's the questions," and and it almost became that that way of being a structure. I wanted to to bring it back to something because I'm I'm intrigued by the challenge for CEOs and leaders of organizations, and then on the flip side of that, the innovators within the organizations to give them the empathy because I've been that person and you you sometimes are critical of the CEO. Now, now a couple of things. W one was, I, I know, as an idea generator, oftentimes, when you bring that to a senior manager, their body language, and even their language itself. So you, you come to the office, and it's like, they're, they're barely looking at you because they're on their computer. And it's like, uh, it's kind of like, and then it's like rubbing the neck, you know, which literally is body language for this is a pain in the neck for me. And then it's like the expulsion of air. It's like, oh, here's Aiden again with his idea that that triages me to go, don't bother. But on the flip side, I've interrupted that CEO who's just fully execution mode. And I, that makes me think that if you zoom up a level, and for example, you mentioned chords earlier on, the CEO of Cordza at the time was given permission by the chair, by the by the board to innovate and look to a new future. So therefore, there was time carved out for that CEO to do that. That's one thing. And then the other is that if you're a CEO, you're you have so much on your plate, I have so much empathy for so many CEOs, maybe it's a new merger, maybe it's a new acquisition. But also, maybe your business is doing so, so well at the moment. And the board are like, let's make hay while the sun's sh shining. Don't be distracted and start to look towards new futures when we have a very, very viable business here today. There, there's a lot in that, Ben, but I'd love you to give your opinion on that because this is the challenge. Okay. Okay. Uh, let, 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 me, let me mention something. Uh, I'll come back to the, the problem with the CEOs that you mentioned. Um, what I've discovered uh, when it comes to whether you can interrupt, whether you feel legitimate to bring your ideas or not, that in some ways, by formally uh, acknowledging that there's an innovating engine, which means that there's an innovating space, there's an innovating time, creates that legitimacy for people to you know, uh, bring their ideas. This is the time. If this is what I tell people. When you're innovating, you're innovating. But when you're in execution, you're execution. So if you if you if you come at the wrong time with your idea, you won't be welcome in some ways. Um, so 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 this is why it's very important. Well, first, the senior leaders give the general permission that you know innovation is important. It's important that everybody is involved in innovation. But then the the, the middle managers have to create that space now. And, and and even uh, I mean I mentioned about the story of, uh, of of Walt Disney who kind of started this a long time ago by creating even separate separate rooms 
uh, for his teams, he called it the reality room and the dream room. So he would bring the same team uh, in what he called a dream room and says, okay, now we've got to find out and generate ideas about new ways to, uh, you know, marvel the world out there and all that. And, 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 and now you are generating ideas. I call it, let's go crazy. This is a time to do this. And then once the time for innovating, the time and space, and notice now that a lot of organizations create uh, dedicated space, labs, garage, they have all sorts of uh, nice names for it. When you are in that space, it's what I call problem finding. It's about generating as many problems, as many ideas, finding as many new problems to solve for the customer as possible. So when you come out of that, uh, uh, an innovating meeting, I tell senior leaders or middle managers, never ask the team, what was the result? What did you find? That's when you're in execution. You see, when you're in execution, you put a, a team of specialists and they have a problem to solve, which means that it's a very conversion process. They have to find the optimal solution. So when they come out of the meeting, you ask them, what was the solution? They have to have one solution. So this is, this is one way to solve the problem is to say, when you, know, you are in execution, you are in execution. Then you have a, a protected, legitimized, you know, space and time for innovating. And please be as crazy as possible. We want you to be as crazy as possible. So I didn't bring you ideas. I want your ideas at that time, but not in the middle of the execution. A lot of people talk about ambidextrity, but I think if you put ambidextrity at the level of the individual, people can, can manage this, this duality to, you know, be with the customer. I mean, even for people who face the customer, I tell them very simple to, to, to spend 10 minutes in your encounter with the customer, take, take 10 minutes at the end or at the beginning and switch your mind from execution to innovating and listen. You know, be in, I call it listen mode, not, not tell mode or not sell mode, but just listen with, like you said, empathy. That's what I mean by, you know, creating that space for innovating. This is a protected space and, and as crazy as possible. Now, the CEO problem also is a very interesting one because I, 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 I still, again, comes back to the, the original uh, comment that um, a lot of people think that innovation has to come from the CEO or from you know, the R&D guys. In the model that I showed, the BTI model, of course, CEOs and, and senior leaders are expected to, 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 to steer the company and make it innovative and to come up with brilliant ideas. That's fine. But build to innovate is about the engine and the role of the CEO in the engine is, is not to come up with the idea. He does that anyway but is to make sure that the engine can go through the three processes of creation, integration, and, 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 and reframing. Uh, and I think this is, this, is, this is a way to say that the CEOs have some sort of a, a role to create and to nurture the engine, just the way they would, they would, they would create and nurture some other organizational uh, entity in the company. I, I wanted to come back to another challenge for leaders. So we we said earlier on, so you, you mentioned about the framework and the lines between each of the the lines of delineation were dotted. And you say in the book, the distinctions among hierarchical levels are often porous and shifting rather than rigid and fixed. And it reminded me also of how in a ever changing environment in a business environment that changes the whole time, reminded me of a line that Bob Johansson, who is a director of Institute of the Future, who's been on the show before he, he gave me this beautiful line that you need to be ultra clear on vision, but flexible on how to get there. And the challenge there is many people who work in innovation are constantly pivoting, because they're like kind of going, Oh, well, the signposts in the landscape are telling me we need to go this way or that way the trends are telling me and my nose and my gut are telling me this is the way to go. But you bring that to a boardroom level. And if a senior executive presents that to the board and kind of going, I know last quarter, I said, this is what we're going to do. But new information has come along, and we're going this way. 
if you do that enough times, oftentimes the board may lose confidence in you and kind of going, this guy doesn't know what he's at, or this girl doesn't know what she's at. And as a result, then you run a risk again of people thinking differently about you. Therefore, at a higher level, and this is some of the trends that I noticed in your book, the case studies, was that the board was the right board to back the CEO and to back the senior executives in the organization. That was a key finding I found from reading your book. Right. And 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 here I want to come back. Actually, I I didn't suspect this. The distinction between innovation and innovating would be so profound. But this is another another place where I think it can also uh, uh, bring some light to the conversation here. Uh, 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 what we're talking about, huh? and I don't want to say that it's not connected to innovation. What we're talking about is building an innovative engine. It's about building and nurturing the innovating capabilities of the company, making sure that you enlist and leverage the capabilities of everyone in the organization. So this is not about innovation. For sure, the, 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 the senior leaders, the CEO have to come up with innovation. But what we're talking about is building capability, competency. And this is where a board uh, uh, can, can, can hardly disagree with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't want to say that it's 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 obvious, but 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 those companies where it happened, that was what it was. People understood that innovation was so critical, so important, uh, that you cannot rely only on a few geniuses in the company. And 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 again, I always challenge people, asking them, what do you do if you don't have them? What don't you do if you don't have a genius leader? Actually, we can think about companies that had a genius leader who is gone or is not there anymore. Did they stop being innovative? No, because you create you know, an organization that is innovative in spite of the individuals. It is this notion that it's a collective capability. It's a collective genius. Uh, and by the way, with the, the law of large numbers, Notice it says anybody, so everybody can 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 innovate. So that that makes a lot of people. You can innovate in everything you do. So it's not only in products; it can be in processes. So there's a, there's a lot of ideas there, and you do it on a continuous basis. So you increase the number, the sheer volume of ideas, which means that everything else being equal, the probability that you will have some ideas or out of all these people, you might see a, a genius emerge. I mean, is, is, is kind of statistically increased. That's, that's, that's all what the book is trying to say is, sure, if you have geniuses, if you have a fantastic R&D capability, of course, this is important. You know, you know, take care of them, incentivize them, reward them. But what about the rest? There's so much potential. There's so many ideas lying out there uh, and so much tapped, untapped uh, talent, not talent, capability. I like to call it capability, not talent. So much capability out there that can help, you know, create new ideas. And now again, we come back to this whole notion I get also, also asked sometimes, you know, um, Innovation is, 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 is an improvement in innovation or not. Uh, and my only kind of remark is that, you know, uh, when do you know that an idea is going to be uh, a breakthrough or is going to be a blockbuster product? The only time is when you bring it to market, when you implement it. Before that, it is an idea. So, so you should try to get as many ideas as you can. That's why I I have a, a, a very clear definition of what is innovating. Yeah, I love it. And uh, I've been I've received a couple of emails from listeners to the show, and they say you keep quoting Buckminster Fuller, but it's exactly for this reason. There's nothing in a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly. So, like you said, how do you know the idea is going to be a, a breakthrough idea? So many ideas, it's like you need to bet on all the horses in the race in order for one of them to come through and have a winner. And I thought about, uh, the, you know, the CEO there, 
he didn't condemn the idea, but he asked questions in order to tease the idea out because none of us really know if an idea is a good idea. You know, my kids are constantly saying things and I judge those ideas from my own perspective or my own context, which is very different from theirs. So they could be on a way better path than I am. But I wanted to, to share one thing. I'm laughing to myself, Ben, here. We've about 10 minutes left. <laughs> and we haven't even got past the introduction of the book. So we we might be doing a part three if you're up for it. But uh, I, I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to bring it back to uh, something that you said, which is the CEO saying thank you. And you say in the book that note that the BTI BTI framework, the built to innovate framework does not assume the traditional top down approach to innovating. Instead, the building of an innovating engine can begin anywhere. It can start with the frontline innovators who generate ideas, design experiments, develop prototypes and showcase their successes. Your motto for this model of innovation is don't ask for permission, make others jealous. Once frontline innovators in a single department have shown the way with a handful of successful breakthroughs, others throughout the company will be eager to in imitate them. I wanted to, to just hone in on that maybe as a last point that, that you'd expand upon. I mean, thank you. I'm glad that you picked on that. Uh, again, this is the, the, the challenge of writing a book is that, uh, is it, I mean, of course, uh, there's a focus, there's a key message. But but uh, but this is one of those, and and uh, you know, uh, I mean, I could belabor the, pro the 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 point so many times, but I think the the reason why it's a, it's a model with nine cells, three roles, three processes is is exactly for that is to show that uh, you, you don't need to have all the cells together to become innovative. You can start at any any of these cells. Um, uh, so, as I explain in the book, it, it 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 can be just started by CEOs who and 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 quite a few examples like BSF or Bayer or 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 even Corsa. Uh, it was at, at at a very senior level where somebody decided we we need to become more innovative. We need to complement our R and D capability with some engine that leverages everybody, uh, or you have other organizations where it started because some people uh, had had ideas, and 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 these ideas uh, evolved into a project that became a new business, uh, uh, or it could be simply because senior uh, middle managers are sending people to training. So you can you can it's 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 you can you can start at any point. And it's not about having the whole model completed. It's just a, it's just a structure to help people think through how to build the innovating engine. And 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 the bottom line, uh, to come back to what you were saying, is 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 really about making sure that everybody becomes innovative. I mean, I start with a very simple uh, and primitive uh, statement: is that everyone in the company has a has a customer whether it's an external customer or an internal customer right so anyone can be able can 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 ask the question how can i create more value for my customer if you're in hr you know how can i create value for more for employees or for new recruits or for the ceo uh, so you can ask questions about how to create more value uh, and innovate in a sense and i also start with the statement that Raw. Uh, don't want to come back to the discussion about children, but you know when you're born, you're innovative. You have a level of innovation. So the innovating engine is about how do you help people build their innovating muscles. It's it's fascinating uh, to see how people are, uh, you know, excel at at the execution role and 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 have so many ideas that they keep inside and they go home and suddenly they become very creative, taking care of the children, taking care of their community. And it's almost as if they come back to, to, to the office and they switch off that innovating capability. So this is really about unleashing that, saying to people, you have permission to express your creative, your innovative side, and we are going to even help you train that muscle. Like you go to the gym and you train 
your 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 arms or your legs by using equipment. So I have tools people can use to strengthen their innovative muscle. And then if you do enough reps, and if you keep you know the 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 the, the program, then you are increasing the innovating capability of everyone a little bit notch a notch a notch a notch. And this is what this is about is really about not only allowing everybody to become innovative, but helping them to become even better by, you know, uh, creating uh, a training, you know, like a, a physical training program for them to strengthen their innovating muscle. And, and, and by the way, this is also a very important point that I, 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 I gathered in, my, in my, many of my uh, interviews is that people enjoy their job much better. People really relish the time when they're going to be going, you know, even if it's for an hour uh, to visit a customer or to, to go to a store or a branch and to just observe. It brings freshness. It brings fun to their job. Uh, and this is something that is not to be to be underestimated, even if they are still measured on execution. I mean, this is not going to go away. But being able to express your creativity and even for some people feel that you can make an impact on the future, you can influence the future of the company, gives a sense of meaning, a sense of pride that they don't necessarily get uh, out of execution all the time. I think that's a beautiful way to wrap up today's episode Ben. we'll be doing more than two i think <laughs> it's like we prepared the soil for the book now so we've prepared to go on there just to say i i call that effect where say for example senior leadership or the ceo may say to somebody ben great job on that i loved your idea well done and then you you do that somewhere public where maybe it's, you know, back when we're in the office again, or on a virtual town hall, you might call somebody out, I call that the virtual curtain twitcher effect, you know, this kind of thing where somebody's looking out the curtain and kind of going, what's going on over there, Ben Sow's got a new car. And it creates this kind of jealousy that you you mentioned there. And, and it's, I found it so interesting that it's the very human elements that can actually drive that change, like the thank you, like the acknowledgements, like the shining a light on some of those people. And it may not be just a brand new idea, it may be calling out some part of the organization, some bureaucracy that you get rid of in order to create new space and new time for people to innovate as well. It's, uh, it's fascinating. It's, I, I have to say, because that, that motto came, came, you know, uh, uh, again, from working with people, and I had always this expression that people used to bring, especially uh, in the Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, culture, um, you know, don't ask for uh, permission, ask for forgiveness. This is how people who are on the front line were being told about how to innovate. And and I realized that why should they feel they need to ask for forgiveness? Why do they have to feel bad about innovating? If you give them permission, they, if they give them permission, they don't need to ask for forgiveness. They are expected to do it. So that's why I changed the motto. I mean, not for, uh, uh, for frontline people, but for, for uh, mid-level uh, managers is to say, give permission to people. They don't have to feel they need to ask for forgiveness. Give them permission. They will astound you. They will come up with ideas that are going to make you look so good. And this is how you're going to make other people jealous. Uh, your other middle managers are going to say, wow, you know, Ivan, your team is, is got the awards and they come up with so many great ideas. How did you do that? Uh, I mean, I mentioned in the, in, in, in the book, just to, to, to make it very concrete, I think it is Alliance, Alliance UK, who has an um, uh, innovation league table that they, that they uh, publish on a regular basis where, you know, every unit is, uh, is assessed in terms of uh, contribution to innovation. So you can imagine uh, there's some sort of a emulation uh, between middle managers of the different UK operations to, I mean, at least not be on the bottom of that list, but to be on the top of that list. And this is very important because the, if you try to incentivize the frontline innovators on innovation, you kill it. You're killing innovation. You're creating so much stress 
that people will be afraid to innovate. But if the team leader, if the unit leader uh, is, is incentivized on the contribution of the team to innovation, that's a different story. We'll get into some of the case studies the next day. We'll, we'll share the framework through the case studies. I'll give a little, we'll give a little recap of where we were today. And Ben, thank you for joining. I know it's like 10pm over in Japan. Ben is joining us from Japan. He, he's going on to do a, a webinar after the show as well, which is why our time is restricted. I really appreciate you putting in the time. Author of Built to Innovate, Essential Practices to Wire Innovation into Your Company's DNA, Ben Bensow. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. It was so much fun. I'm looking forward to part two, at least. <laughs> nice one, man. Brilliant. Merci. Merci bien. Thank you. Thank you so much.